You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I am joined by the legend, Angie's husband, John. John Mio. Hey, John. How you doing? Hey, Chris. How's it going? Greg, so glad to be here. So glad to be here. Yeah, I know. It's great. And uh, welcome back, you know, because we have you on sometimes when we uh, cover specific species. I know, you know, but my first feature here, this is exciting. It's only been, what, three years in my first feature? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I tell you folks, tell you folks, it, it takes a little time, it takes a little time to get there, but you'll get there too someday. I know. Angie's like, you gotta interview John. This is like two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. are two years later, finally. You, you guys are busy. I get that. I get that. You're popular. Yeah, no, and it's great that, you know, you, we, we talked about your favorite animal, the panda, and yeah. then your, your work with the hippos and, mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you won. You did win the hippo. I won off. hippo, but I didn't win lion, which is lion. ridiculous. Yeah, but I think you had a couple couple drinks before you came in. And tried. Just, I just, you know, uh, everyone is lulled into what they think a lion sounds like, not what a lion really sounds. Really like. sounds like. I okay. worked with them. I know what they sound like, but whatever. Yeah. No, there's no bitterness here. We'll just no, need no. T- we need a tiebreaker soon. That's all. We will. We'll come up with a species and then yep. uh, have you both you know, have you on when you and Angie can both do it. So now, anyways, John. So today we're going to talk a lot about what you do and in, in zoos. Uh, and I guess aquariums. We can we can put them into that uh-huh, uh-huh. that group. But you know, first, because people we haven't talked a lot about unless they've really listened to every episode where you grew up. But if you can just kind of give a background, you know, where you grew up and I guess where your interest in conservation and zoos began. Absolutely. So I'd love to. The first thing I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to give a shout out to you and Angie. And this is for the listeners at home. I got to tell you, these two, you know, these two are amazing, but they love you guys at home. So when I'm at work, I get three text messages from Angie, three types of text messages. Mm -hmm. One's about our kids. One's about the food I have to pick up at the store. And the (laughs) third one is text messages about things that you guys are sending her. She loves the feedback that you give her. She's really psyched to hear from you, to hear about your great stories, how she's inspired you. So please keep that coming because these two, they thrive off that. That's why they do this. They are doing this to inspire you guys, the listeners, and they are both extremely passionate about conservation. You guys know that. You guys know they're passionate about animals. You've heard them every single week, every single week, the dedication they put out. So I just have to plug that and make sure you guys all understand. They love to hear from you guys. They love the feedback and it really pushes them and inspires them. So keep it coming. Uh, they want to hear from you guys. So oh, that's, that's all. Thanks. That's my Thank part. you. No, uh, no <laughs> we problem. do. We do. We do. So you, thanks. You got, and yeah, and you guys deserve, deserve it. And it's authentic. They, they genuinely love to hear from you guys. Um, so a little bit about me. I grew up in Massachusetts. My family was fairly outdoorsy. We went camping and we had a great backyard and we would play in, in the backyard and the woods and the pond and, you know, that sort of stuff. And we, I was always interested in animals growing up. And as I progressed through school, I got my undergraduate degree in biology because I knew I wanted to do something with animals, but I had no idea what. And so as an undergraduate, I was able to hook up with a, um, my undergraduate mentor, uh, Dr. William Barklow, and he worked on hippos. And this is at a small state university in Massachusetts. And he worked with hippo vocalizations. He actually would travel to Africa and he discovered some things about hippos that they can vocalize above water and below water at the same time simultaneously. They can mm-hmm. also determine whether they vocalize above water or below water. So they can go one medium or another. So this is something that hippos, um, 
you know, the only animals that can do this sort of thing. Some frogs will do this, but they're the only mammals. So it's really unique. He did a lot of recordings. He worked with a couple organizations and it was just great to work with him. I did an undergraduate research with him. Um, at the same time, I, I sort of did a little bit at uh, the local zoo. It's actually the first time I had gone to the zoo when I was in college. I never visited zoos because my mom did not like zoos. She liked okay. animals, but she didn't like mm-hmm. animals in zoos. Mm-hmm. So my first experience was in my college years at a zoo, and, and it was great. It was the local zoo up there in Boston. So I, I had a good time there, and I ended up um, volunteering at that zoo, but I didn't know what I was going to do for a job. So I got a job in computers. I made a lot of money. It was a lot of um, – it was interesting work, but I was behind a computer all day long, every day. And it was, it was sort of not where I wanted to be in my life. So my undergraduate professor called me up one day and asked, he said, Hey, I've got this, this research project down at Bush Gardens in Tampa, Florida. Would you like to head it up? And I said, absolutely. So I left, I left a really great job, a uh, well-paying job. I should say not a great job, well-paying job, took a job at Bush Gardens, $6, 32 cents an hour. Uh, I was a research coordinator and then I was also a zookeeper at the same time. And so it was kind of a split job. I worked there at Bush, worked with lots of fantastic animals. I worked with lions and a hyena, uh, hippos, of course, uh, baboons, meerkats. I worked a little bit with the rhinos there with tigers. So it was a really great opportunity to do a little bit of science, do some research, also learn the fundamentals of zookeeping, which I really had no idea about when I was in in Massachusetts at the local zoo there at Franklin Park Zoo. I worked in the hospital, so I helped the veterinary staff out um, on a on just Sundays, eight hours on Sundays, and it was it was a great opportunity. But I, I wasn't a keeper. I didn't know what a zookeeper was. And so when I went to Bush Gardens, I really learned this is what a zookeeper is, is what a zookeeper mm-hmm. does. And I learned a couple fundamentals there that really um, set me up throughout the rest of my time as a zookeeper. And one of those was training, was operant conditioning, working with animals so that they help you. You can, you can help work with an animal to help them in their own management. So it was a great opportunity to work with animals, work with some great people, learn a whole, whole bunch. And, uh, I had a great time there. Um, and then I moved on and I kind of hit a bunch of different zoos from there. I worked at zoo Atlanta for a while. I worked primarily with hoofstock, um, hooves and horns, um, I work with rhinos there and then I made my way to elephants for a little while, pandas, um, my favorite for a little while, more <laughs> carnivores, primates, worked with orangs, orangutans mm-hmm. at Zoo Atlanta and they're an incredible animal, smartest animal I've ever worked with. I mean, just, uh, blow your mind with, with how intelligent they are. Uh, I went back to Hoofstock as a, as a manager there. And so I worked there for again, a little while longer. Then I went up to Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo, worked with, again, hooves there for a little bit. I uh, worked in the hoofstock area. That's actually where I met Angie. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. um, then I moved to the carnivore area, the lion house, worked with all of their different carnivores. Again, lions, tigers, uh, bears. Oh, my. I did. I worked with all of them. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. Them. Polar bears, again, when you talk about intelligent animals, orangs mm-hmm. up there. And then polar bears are up there, and they're incredible. I worked with... Um, puma, snow leopard, um, servals. I worked with just so many fantastic, amazing animals. And again, some great keepers. I worked with seals. It was such a great mm-hmm. time. Then this position came open, uh, for it was, it was for a professor and an assistant director mm-hmm. down at Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo in Gainesville, Florida. And it, um, it's something I never thought about teaching, but it was that sort of assistant director uh, kind of thing that was first interesting. But then the more I thought about teaching, the more I thought about, I really love the zookeeping field, but I want to figure out how to give more. So at the time mm-hmm. I was, um, I was a manager in that area, had a good time, worked with animals, but you know, sometimes it just felt like I needed to give more and I couldn't. So I thought this position might give me that opportunity. I applied for it. I, I came down to Gainesville and I fell in love Um and I was just really inspired by the facility and what they were doing and what they were able to do. And so, yeah, I, I, I was lucky. They offered me the job and uh, it was a steep learning curve to be an instructor. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm, steep to go mm-hmm. from being a zookeeper to in a classroom teaching. Right, um, right. Because that's where you realize the only time you learned how to teach was by sitting in a classroom and seeing what somebody else did. And, you know, you and I have both been in those really bad 
bad lectures before. Yeah, I know. That's what a <laughs> lot of the instructors in my past had done. But I really pulled from those great instructors from mm-hmm. Dr. Barklow and a couple other instructors from my undergrad. And I pulled from them and uh, learned a lot and have improved. I still need to improve. I still need to get better. But uh, I was able to do that. And then after a little bit, uh, about a year, the, the director at the zoo, he retired. And so I took over as director at um, Tenderfoot College Teaching Zoo. So I've been there for 11 years. I've been director for 10 years. And mm-hmm. it's been a great experience. I've got an amazing staff. And I am able to contribute. I'm able to do uh, more. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to contribute to the bigger picture and the field of zookeeping as a whole. No, it's interesting, John. You talk about, you know, everything you've worked with. It's, it's such a, a wide span of, of animals and, and carnivores and big and small. And mm-hmm. we, I mean, in all reality, a joke inside, what hippos are still your favorite. Yeah. Still my, so, yeah. so everybody asks, what's your favorite animal? Yeah. And the hippo species is still my favorite species mm-hmm. animal, but my favorite individual animal was a bongo antelope. So a bongo okay. antelope is one of the last largest animals to be discovered. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very large antelope, uh, middle of Africa, middle of central Africa, dense forest mm-hmm. regions, chestnut red, little white stripes on it, beautiful animal, um, spiral horns. And they're just incredible. They are uh, hoofs. I'm always just impressed with hoofstock. And I've got a lot of, a couple of fun stories with them. Um, but my favorite animal, my favorite individual is Ariel. And she was a bongo that I worked with at Zoo Atlanta. And she just had such an amazing personality. And once you start working with these animals, the coolest thing you realize is that animals have personalities. And you mm-hmm. know this if you have mm-hmm. a pet at home. And it is no different. I, I'm not saying there are pets, but your animals, your dogs, your cats, your turtles, your tortoises, your fish, your birds have their own individual personalities. So does every animal I've ever worked with. I've worked with Thompson gazelle, which is a really tiny, a really small gazelle. Um, and basically just, you know, lion food. I mean, that's what they, there's tons yeah. of them and they, they just feed lions. Right. And so it, it's a pretty innocuous animal that you wouldn't think anything about. And we had two at Zoo Atlanta and they each were totally different individuals. And you just mm-hmm. think like, Oh, it's a small gazelle. They're all the same. They're totally different. But Ariel was, she was uh feisty. She was stubborn. She was funny. Uh, there's this one day when I was working with her and I was trying to shift her out. So I, she's in an inside pen where she had just eaten and I was trying to send her out to the exhibit. And, um, she just wouldn't go outside. I open the door. She wouldn't go outside. So then you close the door and you walk away and then you open the door and she would look outside. She's standing right at the door. She knew it was open. She'd just look at it and stand <laughs> there, close the door and walk away. And I was just getting so frustrated because the zookeeper, you don't have a lot of time. You need mm-hmm. kind of everything to fall into place to, to really get everything done on time. And so finally, I'm just so annoyed. I open the door up. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, Ariel shift. And she walks over and she had this tub that she had been playing with last night. And she goes over and she puts, she, she puts her head in the tub and she stands up with that tub on her head and walks <laughs> back over to me, like at the window, like with this tub on her head. Like, it's just like, I'm so annoyed that she won't get out, but it was just so funny. And I just break down laughing because she just like, She's like, I don't know. I just want to go out. I just want to have a tub on my head. I don't know what she was thinking, but it made me laugh when in the exact moment when I didn't want to laugh. And that was so cool. Oh my God. Um, there, was, there was this one time I was, we, so we had, we, we brought her into quarantine. So when you get an animal into your facility, you keep them segregated from other animals, mm-hmm. other, other, especially the same species so that they, they're not transferring a disease uh, mm-hmm. from one facility to another. Now, the disease rate in facilities, the facilities I worked with, which are accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA, disease rate is extremely low. It happens. There are mm-hmm. things everywhere, but it's very, very low. But anyway, zoos are they're still very um, safe. They, they want to mm-hmm. keep their collection safe. So she was in quarantine. It's fine. It was a great facility. Uh, the only thing that it didn't have, it didn't have a great way to move her from one location to another. So we mm-hmm. had to get a truck. And, um, like a, a trailer, horse trailer, back Mm -hmm. it up to a door and kind of get her into it. Well, she's hoofstock. She doesn't like new things. She's scared of things. So, um, 
me and a couple other people, you go in with herding boards with basically big piece of plywood with handles on them. And I'm about six foot. And I was in there with um, my buddy, Ken, and Ken is over six foot. And so it's Ken and I, two big pieces of plywood, uh, and we're herding her towards the, the uh, truck. And it's going well until we literally get right to the door of the truck where there is no place for her to go. She, so again, Ariel is about five. She stands about five foot tall at her nose. So her mm -hmm. shoulder is about... Uh, about four foot tall. And she weighs, I think she weighed about 300 pounds. Huh. And so we get her to a point where she, she is literally cannot go anywhere. We, we've moved her to a spot where she only has one square foot to stand in. So she's got all four of her feet within one square foot. <laughs> she can either go onto the truck or nowhere. There's nowhere else for her to go is what Ken and I thought. Except uh -huh. all of a sudden she squatted her butt down and then she literally just from a one foot spot sprang over both of our heads, cleared oh, our geez. heads and the board oh. on the other side. She didn't quite stick the landing. She rolled on her shoulder and then stood up into a standing position and just was looking at us. And Ken and I looked at each <laughs> other. She's now behind us and we have nothing to protect us. And we just look at each other. We grab the boards and we get out of there. And we're like, okay. Oh, God. And, um, we said a couple <laughs> other words. Um, yeah, yeah, choice words, yeah. But yes. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. I mean, and and she wasn't doing it to be aggressive or to attack mm -hmm. us. She's just like, I don't, I don't want to go in there. So yeah. I'm just going to go over your heads and said, I mean, it was just so incredible. And that's the thing about animals. They will inspire you. If you give them a chance, they mm -hmm. will inspire you at every moment because they just come up with something new and different. And it was, it was a super cool uh, experience. And then, so we ended up, what we ended up doing is figure out, we got to make our herding boards taller so we tap yeah. something to the top of them. And we made our herding boards about um, 10 feet tall. 10 feet. I think we tacked four yeah. feet on 10 feet yeah. tall so she couldn't jump over them. And then she, and then she finally, she went in, but she, uh. she's, she was a great animal. She was a lot of fun to work with. So it's just, it's fun that, you know, and again, she's a beautiful striking animal, but for the mm -hmm. most part you think, Oh, you know, an antelope, whatever. Yeah. It's know, an antelope. Yeah. It's just yeah. an antelope. But Animals have personalities and they're inspiring and fun to work with. But I, every single animal I have learned something from and every single mm -hmm. animal I have been impressed and humbled by, you know, I worked with a, a tiger at a facility who for years didn't trust people and didn't trust men. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I started there, he would not do anything for me. He wouldn't move from me. He wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't come over to me. I had to basically be out of the area for him to do anything. But over time, when you work with animals and you build trust, you know, eventually he would, you know, he would rush up to see me and, and do that chuffing noise. And I know Angie does, has done the chuffing noise and, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the happy tiger noise is, <laughs> they do this chuffing noise. That, again, yeah. 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 Big amazing. Cat. Right. And he would do that. And there's nothing, there is nothing like that, that when you have an animal that's a challenge that eventually comes and, and, and runs up to you and does that chuffing, that greet, that cat right. greeting noise to you. So, um, I will tell you that my career as a zookeeper and as, you know, as you hear me talking, I, I'm talking about animal experiences because those are the things that really stick to me in the last 10 years, we have animals at a zoo. So we, we, uh, the unique thing about my program the uh, zoo animal technology program at, at Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo is that we train zookeepers and we train zookeepers within our own AZA accredited zoo. So we're the only program like that. We're the only facility like that. There's no other facility that's accredited by AZA and also trains zookeepers. There's no other college that has a uh, a zoo on grounds that's accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So, so we are unique. And so I have animals at my facility that I work with I've had great experiences with them as well. And then I also have students that I'm inspired by on a daily basis as well. You know, in the last 10 years, 11 years now, I've been able to teach countless, countless students how to be zookeepers. And it's, it's truly inspiring and, and fantastic. And they're all over the country. I mean, I know, you know yep. here in San Diego, you know, uh, in California. So there, there are, uh, Santa Fe college graduates everywhere. So not only are they all over the country, they're all over the world, right? Yeah. So New yeah. Zealand, uh, has yeah. some, some zookeepers. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've got Jesse, two, yeah. I think I've got two zookeepers at that, at that facility. Um, and so, 
we've had them in England before. Um, I've had them uh, come from China, go back to China. So they are all over the world, all over the country. Absolutely. We So we have been doing this for 50 years. We're actually celebrating our 50th year anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're the oldest zookeeping program. There are other zookeeping programs that have been doing it as well. Uh, but like I said, we're the only one that has our own zoo that's accredited by ACA. And we're the oldest program. We've been doing it for the longest. And um, and I think it's pretty amazing the way we do it. You know, um, so this is what I tell people. And I'm going to switch roles here for a second. I'm going to mm-hmm. interview, yeah. interview you for a second. So okay, okay. So, so Chris, do you know how to uh, do you know how to ride a bike? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> yes. Great. Yes. Yes. So think back to when you learned how to ride that bike. Yeah. Okay. Training wheels. Got it. Okay. Yep. Training wheels. Yeah. So when you learned to ride that bike, did your parents bring you into a room? Did they sit you down at a desk? Did they show you a PowerPoint on how no. to, how to ride no, a bike? No, 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 what, what, no. what happened? No, no. This is, this is way back before. PowerPoint. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this the slideshow, the click, the click yes, of the slideshow. There you go. Yeah. Or overhead projector. Right, the overhead projector. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did no, they do that? Uh, How did you learn? No, no, no. They put you on and they, they said, there you go. And then you watch and you pedal around with training wheels and mm-hmm. then, you know, and then when you eventually take them off, you fall down a couple times, uh-huh. but you get used to it. Uh-huh. You know, and then, then you don't need them anymore. Right. So you fell yeah. down and yeah. then you, probably learned a little something from that falling down and make mistakes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's how we learn. That's how we all mm-hmm. learn best. You mm-hmm. know, we are mm-hmm. um creatures that learn more from our mistakes. We get frustrated by mistakes. We don't like to make mistakes, but you mm-hmm. learn a lot more from your mistakes than your successes, but you learn mm-hmm. it by doing it. And that's what mm-hmm. we do in our zoo in the teaching zoo. We absolutely do have PowerPoints and we do show them PowerPoints. We show them things, uh, we show them animal behavior. We show them nutrition. We're talking about the different species, but they are learning by doing it out in the zoo. So they mm-hmm. have instructors mm-hmm. that work with them. Right now we've got, uh, seven talented instructors that have worked in zoos in one way, shape or form or another. So they have zookeeping experience themselves. And they are training these students hands-on out in the zoo. Um, yeah. Sort of a, a typical example for you is we have parrots. We've got a couple of parrots. We've got a, a yellow, uh, yellow crown Amazon parrot who can be feisty with certain people. It happens. Uh, just again, I was talking about animals, their own personalities, their own way of doing things. This parrot just picks people she likes and pick people she doesn't. And so one day I had a keeper come up to me and said, Oh, you know, uh, this parrot, she, she just doesn't like me. She's, you know, trying to attack me. So I'm really concerned about going in the exhibit. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, great. Well, so come get me before you go do the exhibit and we'll work on it. So the next day she came to get me for the exhibit. Okay. We're going to go in the exhibit. Okay. So we're not going in the exhibit. You're going to go in the exhibit. You're going to take all your tools, get all your tools together to clean. And here's a net. And then you use the net to protect yourself. All you got to do is block her from coming at you mm-hmm. with the net. You're going to go in the exhibit. You're going to block her. And you're also going to clean and service the enclosure. And then I'm going to be on the outside giving you some advice. Like, oh, she's right behind you. Oh, no. Okay. Notice how she's looking at you now. Be careful. Okay. She's, right. she's not paying attention. She's paying attention to the peacock that's walking mm-hmm. by. So you can go about doing your thing. So I'm coaching her from the outside. But she's the one inside the exhibit Doing it. Doing it. Because when you become a keeper, you know, once you're a keeper, it's your job to do it all. You will not have a keeper and another keeper. It's not going to be that way. There are some times when you're working with other keepers, but for the most part, it's you doing it all by yourself. If this was any other zoo with an intern, you know what would happen to that new brand new keeper? The the other zookeeper would have said, I'll just do it. You know, either you stay out here yeah. or it would have been like, oh, I'll go Just inside. Watch, yeah. yeah. And, and I'll protect you and then you clean. Well, mm-hmm. if someone's protecting you, you're not going to learn how to do that and clean at the same time. You have to have all those skills all together. And so right. that's what we're teaching them. And that's the value that our program brings and the value that our zoo brings is that at the end of it, you have done all of the things that a zookeeper will do. Not every single thing, not every animal, but you have all the fundamentals down. And uh, right. it's a, a two-year program. It's five-semester program. They get an associate of science degree, and they can go right to work. And they do. They go right to work at a zoo right afterwards. So students who leave the program, they get jobs. Just about any zoo you can think of. Um, San Diego is a little bit tougher. Um, mm-hmm. San Diego is 
you know, they're a high quality top of the line zoo. So they can demand five years of experience from any of their zookeepers. But we've got several zookeepers there right now. Mm-hmm. They went to other zoos, they got the experience and now they're at San Diego. But our, some of our other zookeepers, I've got a keeper who's at Disney and she's working elephants. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, I've got a keepers who've worked penguins. I've got, you name an animal, you name a zoo. We've got a zookeeper who's there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, it's a great program. I mean, I know, you know, Angie and I do talk about it often and, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with you guys and do some research when I was at UF mm-hmm. uh, with your students, but you know, getting back to the, the zoo, actual zoo there, mm-hmm. you guys do have some conservation projects, right? So right. it's not, you know, it's not just a teaching zoo, but you also are active in conservation. Right. So, so for us, um, we are teaching zoo. We teach students, but we are also accredited by the association of zoos and aquariums. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for a number of different reasons. Association of zoos and aquariums. That is the gold standard. They, they set the standard for the expectations of zoos and the quality of zoos. Mm-hmm. It's important for us to be AZA accredited because every zoo that's, Every zoo should be. That's the highest standard. But then we also have students we're teaching the highest standards too. All of our lessons tie directly into an accreditation standard. Mm-hmm. So going back to that, one of the expectations or several of the expectations of AZA zoos are to do conservation work, to participate in conservation, to breed your animals appropriate, appropriately. So to work with what we call species survival plans or Taxon advisory groups. So we work with other zoos around the country in order to propagate a species in our zoo appropriately. So absolutely on our grounds, um, a couple of the projects that, that we do, we are involved in, uh, Guam rail breeding. So Guam rail is a small flightless bird from the island of Guam. Um, they were extinct for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. uh, because they were not living on the island of Guam in the wild anymore. So they were considered mm-hmm. extinct. They're extinct because of the brown tree snake. This tree snake was uh, introduced to the island. It started eating this flightless bird and its eggs. So before they were all eaten, the um, Guam government as well as the uh, U.S. government went on the island and they took a bunch of the birds off. They worked with zoos on breeding programs. We weren't in the very first group of zoos that were breeding them, but we have now been breeding them for many, many years. And we're Mm -hmm. one of the top uh, producers of Guam rail chicks. And so this bird that we breed at our zoo, small flightless bird, if, if you saw it, you probably wouldn't be, think again, your average listener wouldn't think it was anything special, but it's an amazing animal. It's got some Mm -hmm. really cool features. It's got some great vocalizations. Um, so we breed it and then we work with our partners at other zoos to release the Guam rail back onto the island and back onto neighboring islands. So we have helped with the propagation of this animal. And Mm -hmm. recently Guam rails are no longer considered extinct because they have put them back into the wild on the island of Guam. So it's pretty amazing to say that we have helped bring an animal back from extinction. Literally. I mean, we're not, you know, and and, and I know you're a fan of the woolly mammoth and I know you're you're a fan of, you know, sort of that idea of like, like taking an animal... And, and bring and it say, back, but literally yeah. breeding to bring this animal back. Yeah. And you said extinct, and just to clarify, it's extinct in the wild. Extinct in the wild. And then reserve populations mm-hmm. back. Not like, cause the mammoth, yeah, it would be great to bring it back just to see it, but it's such a waste of money. <laughs> um, but I think that's, you know, that, that's such a key piece. Again, another conservation success story that it's critical zoos play a part of that specifically AZA accredited zoos. Mm-hmm. And we, Angie and I have talked about this quite a bit and I'm glad, you know, we finally get to be able to talk about it with you. What does it mean to be AZA accredited and why is that important? Right. So to be AZA accredited, we are actually going through what's called accreditation right now. So we uh, have been accredited since 2000. So for the last 20 years, mm-hmm. we've been accredited Every five years, your accreditation lapses and you have to get accredited again. They don't call it reaccreditation. Reaccreditation mm-hmm. denotes that you have something and you're just going to get it again. They mm-hmm. have such high standards that they say, we're not reaccrediting you. You have to go f- for a full accreditation again. Um, 
So we essentially have to uh, answer a questionnaire and produce materials that support everything they ask. So they are looking for a, a facility which is stable, which is financially stable. So they mm-hmm. want to support facilities that are going to be around. So your roadside zoos that uh, mm-hmm. are day-to-day and can barely put ends together, they're not going to make mm-hmm. it because they want financially stable facilities. They want mm-hmm. well-trained staff. They want a facility that's uh, safe and secure. They want a facility that practices um, emergency procedures. On and on and on. Education and conservation are two crucial parts of mm-hmm. AZA accreditation. And so what they're expecting is that you are educating the public and that you are participating in conservation actions. And so it's a great, AZA is a great organization because they accredit every zoo you can think of, all the big zoos you can think of, mm-hmm. they're accredited by AZA and they're doing international zoos as well now. But I like to give the example, two hours down the road from me, there's this little tiny zoo you might have heard of before. Mm-hmm. It's called Disney's Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. right? Great partner of ours. <laughs> yes. They've been working with us for years. I've had uh, their senior leadership on my advisory board. Fantastic organization. And they do incredible work. They are AZA accredited. So AZA holds Disney's Animal Kingdom and Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo to the same standards. So mm-hmm. they don't come in and say, oh, you're small. You're a little place. It's okay. You don't have to do stuff. You don't have to do conservation. You have to do education. Mm-hmm. It's okay. No, they, they hold us to the same standards. Now, do they tell me, Hey, John, you have to put in a $1 billion exhibit? Like, yeah, like <laughs> Disney does. No, they don't. No, yeah. But the, but the facilities I have, the habitats I have for the animals have to be up to the highest standards. They have to be up to modern zoological standards. And so that's the really cool part is they keep us at this. They, they always keep us pushing forward and you should always be pushing yourself forward. Is it a struggle to be AZA accredited? It is. Is it a lot of work? It is a ton of work for myself and a ton of work for my staff. My staff has put in a ton of time on this, but it's so great because they push us forward and they make us really think about some of the things that we're doing and why are they, why are we doing them and how do we justify them and are we doing everything we could be doing? And so um, we are participating in conservation efforts. We are collecting money and giving money directly to conservation organizations in in the wild. So those so organizations that are supporting species in the wild, whether that wild is in Florida or whether it's the United States as a whole or Guam or Papua New Guinea, we are supporting conservation in the wild. And it's such a cool feeling. And we've for a little zoo, we've done, we've had a rather large impact that I'm very proud of. And mm-hmm. so those conservation actions, as well as the animals we have on grounds and the animals that we breed and care for, that all creates a very large picture and a large supporting structure of conservation. And that's what AZA zoos do. Um, the biggest problem that AZA zoos have is that they're not talking about all the great things that they're doing. And people don't right. understand yeah. what zoos are. And again, I get it. Like I told you, my mom does not like zoos, didn't like zoos, probably still doesn't like zoos. She's maybe changed her mind a little bit. She said she likes mine. <laughs> you but, would hope. You know, who knows, right? <laughs> With you and Angie, yeah. Who knows? But, um, you know, she doesn't like that idea of animals being in a zoo, being held there for, you know, whatever, quote unquote, no reason. Well, I'm in complete agreement with her. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't want an animal in our zoo. And I tell our students this. If our animals are in our zoo you, and you as a student are not talking about them and not educating the public about them and you're not inspiring the public to think about and consider and love these animals, then that animal is wasting its life. We have wasted mm-hmm. its life. So it's mm-hmm. your job as a zookeeper to inspire the public, to capture the public public's imagination to really want the public to help this animal. And everybody can do that. And you guys talk about that every single week on your podcast. Right. What can you do to help them? How do you help them? Again, you don't have to go to Papua New Guinea. You don't have to go to mm. you know the, the jungles of Africa. Everybody listening to the podcast, everybody at home can help animals by the small actions that they do every day. And that's yep. what we're trying to inspire our students and our zookeepers to talk to the public about. And if you do that, then we make a difference. You know, one person taking care of an animal at a zoo 
that may be great for those animals, but that person's not making a difference. But that right. one person talking to every person who comes to the zoo, that's what makes the difference. Inspiring yeah, them, that's what makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you talk about standards, standard of care, I guess my question is, do how often do those standards change, you know, because people are always like, oh, you know, you just stick them in a cage or, mm-hmm. oh, you just do that. And they don't understand everything that goes into it. Right. So maybe if you can just talk about how the AZA standards have changed with really animal welfare is mm-hmm. one of the top priorities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the first things they look for, not just safety of the public and safety of the animal or safety of the keepers and staff, but that the animal is thriving in its exhibit or enclosures, right? So Absolutely. maybe you can talk Absolutely. a little bit about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So animal welfare is easily now AZA's highest priority. And again, this is one of those things that AZA is now doing a good job and now doing a good job of encouraging and requiring zoos to, to talk about the idea of welfare. But Zoos have always been concerned with animal welfare. They've mm-hmm. always done a good job of animal welfare. We just have done a bad job of talking about how we care about animal welfare. So that's one of the great things about this accredited organization is that they refocus us and make us talk about the really important things out there. In this case, welfare. So how often do welfare change, uh, standards change? Technically, the standard itself, it it does change. It gets upgraded. The standard is the same, and that is that you need to keep the animals at the highest welfare possible, essentially. Mm-hmm. But the specifics of that standard change on a daily basis. Why? Because we learn more about these animals on a daily basis. We learn, mm-hmm. we learn from research. We learn from our coworkers. We learn from other facilities. We are learning on a daily basis. This works for this animal. This animal needs this. This is the social situation that works best for this animal. When you breed these animals, this is what you need to do. This is what has so much space to give them. There's so much separation. It goes on and on for every single species practically on a daily basis. So zoos are constantly upgrading their techniques. And, and what I will tell you, you know, a, a little, um, secret about zoos and when you're looking at a habitat and you're looking at an enclosure and you say like, is this a good enclosure or not? Oh, well it's a big mm-hmm. enclosure. So it has to be good. Mm-hmm. Big enclosures aren't ne- necessarily good. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good step. It's a good start, but you want to look at the complexity of the enclosure. You want to mm-hmm. look at where can the animal go? It's a big enclosure, but you can see the animal from every spot and the animal has no place to hide. That's not a good enclosure. The animal needs to get away and feel safe and secure. You need to think about, can the animal um, hide? Can the animal, um, are there different, different types of substrate in the enclosure? So is there grass and dirt and sand, mud, water? Are there different things to entertain the animal? There's uh, there is a list that goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And we have to consider that for every single species all the time. And like I said, we are always pushing things forward. We're always upgrading. We're always taking down older enclosures and building newer ones. And again, they are bigger generally, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're working on complexity. We're looking, we're working on mixed species. So variation for the animals. So we're doing lots of great stuff uh, for the animals in the enclosures, but the welfare is always improving and always changing. And again, do we do everything perfect every day? We don't. And anybody who says that we do, they are not being honest with you. Right, but I'm going right. to be honest with you and I'm always going to be honest with my students and I'm going to be honest with my kids. And I'm going to tell you, we're doing the best that we can every day. And I wouldn't do this if I didn't think that the animals were thriving. You use that word thriving. It's not about mm-hmm. surviving. It's not about being mm-hmm. alive. You can keep right. an animal alive in a box, right. uh, a small box. Again, let me, let me just put this in perspective. So we're accredited by the AZA but we are licensed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so the United States government. United States government licenses about 2,500 facilities to exhibit animals. AZA-accredited zoos and aquariums, there's about 233 of them. So Mm -hmm. only about 10% of all of the U.S. Department of Agriculture facilities that are licensed are accredited by AZA. That is 
we have a standard that far is much is much higher than the U.S. Department mm -hmm. of Agriculture can ever hope to put on a facility. Right. So again, USDA requires you to have enough space for your animal to do its natural movements, which is sit, stand, lay down, turn around. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the space yeah. you need for your animals. That is un <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Like I can't yeah. even put words behind how poor that standard is. So mm -hmm. again, according to USDA, if you have that and you feed the animal and you give it vet care and maybe you give it enrichment, then that's okay. And mm -hmm. I would, if, if I saw an AZA zoo like that, I mean, it would, uh, it doesn't exist. I mean, I don't yeah. think it yeah. doesn't exist. I can tell you that because our standards are much higher because that doesn't even come close. So again, we're not looking for survival. We're not looking for an, to keep an animal alive. We're looking for the animals to thrive, to actually flourish, to do natural behaviors. That's what we're looking for. Does the animal exhibit natural behaviors? Does it give the opportunity to exhibit the natural behaviors that you would see in the wild? And those are the things we're looking for. And so that's the mark of good animal welfare. Yeah, no, that's good. It's a good answer. And it's like, you know, that's why we always push AZA accredited institutions and, you know, some of these other facilities, you just got to be leery of. And, you know, I think the reason I, I know me myself and, you know, Angie too, from, from her background, but also what AZA does for conservation. I mean, that's why we push them so much. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how many millions each year AZA gives and like you just, your Guam rail story is perfect, perfectly captures one species, but how many thousands of species is the AZA actually helping? So, so yeah, that's a, that's a great question. AZA, the co combined effort of all of the AZA zoos, we're looking at somewhere like $230 million given directly to field conservation. So again, mm -hmm. that is spending that for animals in the wild, the species benefit. It's, 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 over 800 species, I think it's like 880 species or subspecies that are benefited by all of these field conservation actions. So mm -hmm. the collective effort of AZA zoos is incredible. And the beautiful thing is that, yes, AZA zoos are giving this, but it's also the public, the people that, that are visiting the zoos. They're the ones that are doing a lot of this contribution. That's what we do at our zoo. We do something that's called Quarters for Conservation. And so everybody who comes to the zoo, 25 cents out of their admission to the zoo goes directly to conservation. You're like, eh, 25 cents. Like what does yeah. that actually do? You know, and we're, we're talking, um, somewhere about $14,000 a year for our zoo. And again, we're one of the smallest AZA zoos in the country and $14,000 a year, not bad, especially for a small nonprofit that doesn't have a lot of money. And so we right, work with right. different, different nonprofits. And we are supporting some of their field actions. Over the years, we've given quite a bit of money. That's, that's come to about $60,000 in just the last couple of years alone. So we're really proud of that. And again, all of these zoos, all of the attendees are given lots of money in supporting conservation. One of my, my favorite, uh, facts is the number of attendees at AZA zoos in a, in a single year. That is more than all of the major league sports combined. So football, basketball, hockey, and baseball, all of the attendees to all of those games collectively for all of those leagues, more people go to AZA zoos than all of those together. So that just shows yeah. you all of those people are, are, are supporting the conservation efforts of these zoos. And it's, it's pretty incredible. It's actually pretty stunning if you think about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, uh, they're very popular. It's, I think there's the vocal minority that are, that are diehard against zoos because mm -hmm. you'll never either convince them or right. they just don't fully understand what zoos really do, right? you know, with the conservation and how critical it's not just ed education's always been there, right? Like right. the last, you know, since I've been a kid, education mm -hmm. at zoos has been a, a key feature. Mm -hmm. I think, like you said, they don't, Blow, AZA doesn't blow their trumpet enough right. about how much they do for conservation, right. you know, like the Guam rail or the, the koala team that I interviewed mm -hmm. or the multiple zookeepers that we've had on the podcast or people that have moved on from zookeeping that 
have traveled the world. Mike Bona, you know, mm-hmm. with giraffes. He was a shout out to my friend at LA Zoo, you know, went to Africa, did some conservation work there. So, you know, uh, Madison, who works at LA Zoo, just did a thing with Global Conservation Force. So, yeah, the zoos are doing a ton, a ton. And that's why, you know, we try to champion them so much. I guess one of the questions I, I have is, can you talk about the breeding program? And I've sat through your lecture, you know, cause, cause you did <laughs> yeah. some repro that yeah. stuff there. Yeah, you, do. you don't have to go that, that in depth, right? But, you know, SSPs and tags, like why are those critical? Because what, where I'm trying to go with it is accredited zoos. You have a, I, I guess a collection that genetics are very, uh, carefully monitored mm-hmm. and controlled mm-hmm. where some outside unaccredited institutions, they just breed anything, correct? you know, without taking into consideration, are they relatives? Are they brother, sister, right. you know, father, daughter? I mean, and that happens a lot, mm-hmm. but not at AZA institutions. Right. So maybe if you can talk about that a little bit. Right. And so the, the key is the, the, the big take home message is AZA zoos, when they breed their populations, they're breeding to maintain as much genetic diversity as possible. So I know that sounds like a big word, genetic diversity. It just means as many of the genes that are, that are in the population as possible. We want to save as many as, as there are. Um, and why? Because we're trying to keep what we call sustainable populations. The more genes you have, the more diverse the population is and the more likely it is to fight off disease or reproduce better, or you know what? We don't know, but all we know is that the more genes, the better this population has to survive in the long run. So we are not selecting for any traits. So if you think about your typical um, dog that is a purebred dog, this is the antithesis of a purebred dog. Purebred dog is typically selected for certain traits, size, color, beauty, coat, mm-hmm. what, whatever your trait is. Breeders are trying to select for a certain trait. We are doing the opposite of that. We are not selecting for any traits. We just want as much genetic diversity as possible. So it really is the way that we do this without getting nitty gritty. It's computer dating. It literally mm-hmm. is computer dating for animals. So we have Asian small clawed otters at our zoo. And, um, we've had them for years and years. They're a great species. They're the smallest species of otter. Um, they're a lot of fun. They're feisty. They're strong. They climb, they swim, they dig, they, they do everything. So they make it a challenge to manage them and they make it a challenge to, to work with them as a keeper. And that's what we want, but we have a breeding pair right now. So we got a male from one facility and a female from another facility and we put them together. But we just didn't call up zoos and say, hey, give me a male. Hey, do you have a female? Mm-hmm. We went to the SSP, which is the Species Survival Plan. It's a group of individuals that's dedicated to managing these this otter population. And they decide, based on genetics, which two otters are the best pair, which two will create the best genetic diversity in our populations. And so that's what we did. Whatever they said, we go with. We put them together. The otters have bred. They've had pups. It's fantastic. Otter pups are about the cutest thing that you can imagine. It is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. they're incredible and they're fun and they're, you know, their vocalizations are amazing. And so what will happen now is we go to the SSP and we say, here are the pups that we have. So where are they going to go? The SSP makes that determination of now who should these pups breed with to create a new population or new um, a new pairing. And so mm-hmm. that just continues the cycle on but it creates a diverse population and we manage it we manage also the size of the population so zoos just can't breed arbitrarily they have to breed when they're told because just breeding a lot is not necessarily good for the population either so it's it's it can be quite technical and we talk about this with our zookeepers it's important for zookeepers Mm -hmm. to understand this is why we breed animals this is why we don't this is why we have to ship animals out even though you've grown attached to them and you, you love them and you, you want them, you right. have to send them out to, to for the best thing for the population. And so it's a really great opportunity um, for the zookeepers to learn that because they see it in practice in our zoo. And every population within zoos is managed this way. I say every. There are some that are not large enough to be managed this way, but 
That's the goal is we're trying to move as an organization, as a collective entity of zoos to manage all of our populations this way in a, in a sustainable way, because it makes the most sense. Why? Because we, we never know what's going to happen in the wild. We never know what are going to happen to the populations in the wild. We're, we're supporting conservation organizations. We are sending money over across, across the world to try to save Asian cloud, small cloud otters in the wild. But if, for some reason that doesn't work. It, we want a sustainable population within our facilities that we can continue to maintain. Well, and I think, you know, a couple things came up in my mind. First was you just, just to touch on your last point, we never know what's going to go in the wild. Let's look, look what happened in Australia. Right. Exactly. And you know how those fires are just were so devastating mm-hmm. and some of the species, you know, the tiger qual, you know, not just the koala. I mean, they took a huge hit mm-hmm. and there's some species barely hanging on with a few hundred animals that the fires just ripped through their habitat. Yep. And hopefully zoos had some as an emergency population. Mm-hmm. So like you said, the Asian small clawed otter, you never know. They may go extinct in the wild like the Guam rail. Right. And what we have under human care you know, we can eventually re-release in the wild. So that that's a great point. And then you said genetic diversity, and, and I just want to go back to it's episode eighty-one, the Saiga, how critical genetic diversity is. Mm-hmm. Because again, this is why we push AZA accredited because they monitor the genetics. You know, the Saiga in two thousand, I think fourteen or fifteen, is when that disease outbreak hit them, and there was two hundred thousand dead. You know, because yeah. they were not, their genetic diversity is so low mm-hmm. because the population got down to such a critical low mm-hmm. number yep. that one disease almost wiped them out off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the stuff that zoos are doing, the science behind it, again, that's, that's a key piece that we haven't really addressed is mm-hmm. the science, the research, you know, the, the, the collaboration mm-hmm. is so critical. So, I, and I, and, and I agree. Let me just touch on science. I totally agree. We are science organizations. We're based in science. Our decisions are made that way. We have amazingly brilliant people who work in zoos and who manage population breeding centers and reproductive centers. And it's, it's just incredible what is out there. We have amazing minds who are all working to sustain as many animals as possible. And and that's one of the reasons I love, again, another reason why I love this field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's great. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So let me ask you this. Imagine a world that there were, was no zoos. Okay. Because some people argue there should be no zoos. So with all your, your breadth of experience and knowledge, if we took away what zoos have done the last 20 years or, or just take them away today, where do you think we'll go in the world with wildlife? What do you think would happen? <laughs> the default. Yeah. yeah, big, big questions, Chris. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So again, immediately that comes to my mind is all of the conservation efforts that we are doing, all of the money we're giving directly to conservation in the wild, that all goes away. All of the populations that we are holding and maintaining, these life raft populations, they all go away. But all of the inspiration that we provide to the guests who visit our zoos, Mm -hmm. that all goes away. And you can say, you know, Hey, uh, you can watch anything on YouTube. You can watch anything Mm -hmm. on the computer screen. You can, there's nothing like coming face to face with an animal, hearing them, smelling them sometimes, Mm -hmm. seeing their actions live. There's nothing that, that can come close to that. And then interacting with animals. We have interaction programs at our zoo. We have conservation education programs where we go off grounds. We bring animals to libraries or schools or, or, um, nursing homes. We have encounters at our zoo with Galapagos tortoises. There's nothing that compares to meeting an animal, touching an animal up close and personal. And those are, those are, um, experiences that stick with people for the rest of their lives. And if they, if there are children, It'll stick with children for the rest of their lives and they will make an impact on animals for the rest of their lives. And that's what we need. That's what we have to do. I am trying to inspire my students who love animals, care for animals and have grown up with animals their entire lives. I'm trying to instill in them their need to inspire the next generation. That's what Mm -hmm. we have to do. If we don't do it, we are lost. We as a planet are lost. 
We as a people yep. are lost. We are all on one boat. We're all in one connected blue marble and you take away some pieces and it's all going to fall apart. And, and I don't know, right. again, I don't know what taking one piece away will do. I don't know what taking two, three, four, but eventually we're going to take away too many pieces yeah. and our interconnected ecosystems are all going to come crumbling down and it's going to be, it's going to be sad for all of us. So zoos shine a light on that. Zoos shine a light on, on the interconnectedness of humans and animals. And I'm not saying that there, there should not be humans or the humans can't use animals even to some extent. We can, we just have to do it in a, in a smart and, and responsible way. No, that's a, that's a great answer. I mean, I, I agree. And I just, I, I imagine how many species would go extinct without zoos, mm -hmm. you know, now you're just talking about the Guam rail that would be gone. Yep. Uh, talking about, you know, I just think of, uh, Ian Riccicchio at the LA zoo and I just had him a, a few weeks ago talking about, you know, the mountain frog here mm. that would be extinct, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Burrowing owls are in trouble in the Western, you know, the, the stuff that San Diego Zoo is doing with them. I mean, just multiple species Con that we condor, don't even think about. Condors, yeah. uh, black-footed ferrets. I mean, the, the yeah. numbers go on and on. We, we personally, we released, we had a pair of eagles that were injured in the wild. They came in in the 80s and we bred them and we personally released 11 eagles back into the wild from this pair of eagles. That's a lot of eagles for a pair to, to produce. And that's a lot of them to release back into the wild. The eagles are now off the endangered species list. I'm not saying it's just because of us, but I know that there were change in attitudes from the public and there were change of attitudes from industry and zoos helped spur and maintain some of that inspiration. So we are doing amazing things for animals, for animal species, for conservation, for education. Zoos are valuable places. Um, zoos are... I really think zoos are some of the key factors in if, if we're going to do this thing that you guys are trying to do, save animals, inspire conservation, zoos are one of the key factors to do that. I think one of the, Absolutely. I think some of the things that we still need to do a better job, we need a better job of connecting conservationists in the field to the public. Mm -hmm. That's what we do mm -hmm. as zoos. That's our job. We're, we're educators. Um, we can't do a ton of the conservation work in the field ourselves because we don't have the staff and the infrastructure, but I would love to connect any conservationist who wants to talk to any one of my guests about their great work. You know, so we have 60,000 people yeah. a year. Again, we're one of the smallest yeah. zoos, but that's pretty great. We got a, a yeah. dedicated group of members at my zoo. We have field trips. We have, we have school groups come and, and the, and the field researchers should be talking to us so we can get their message out. And I think that's something that zoos, need to do a better job and we can do a better job of, and we're, we're well equipped for it. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, zoos are, are working hard, you know, and, and I think as public opinions change in social media and, and everybody's more connected, you know, I think zoos need to, to push that message more. And that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what Angie and I decided going back, you know, starting the podcast, this was one of the things we felt really, really strongly about was being a champion for AZA accredited zoos or accredited zoos around the world. I guess real quick, if you can talk about other countries and their accreditation, I know talking to Jesse down in New Zealand, there's like an Asian one that kind of, you know, there's other organizations. So for our international listeners, you know, what are some of the other organizations they should maybe look at? Yeah, absolutely. So the really great thing, we obviously we've been talking about AZA because we're here in, in North America and, and that is our accrediting body. But basically every region of the world has an accrediting body as well. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and they have their own set of standards. They have their own rules, their own regulations. But essentially the role of all of them is to push high standards of animal care, animal welfare, conservation, and education. And all of our regional accrediting bodies all feed into one body, which is the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So WAZA. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. if, if where, whatever region of the world you are in, if you don't know what your accrediting body is, if you go to WAZA, W-A-Z-A, and you, you look up, you find your region, it'll tell you what your accrediting body is. Go to that accrediting body and it'll tell you which zoos in your area, zoos and aquariums, parks, 
are accredited by your accrediting body. And that's, and that's a great point that you make, Chris, and it's really mm-hmm. important. And it's also, again, something that AZA has done a great job of is working internationally, working with WAZA, working with other regional accrediting bodies to make sure that regardless of where we are, we're all doing the same thing. We're all pushing conservation, mm-hmm. education, animal welfare. We're pushing all of those forward all the time. Yeah, that makes me think of the Lays Pig Zoo out of Germany that I know they do a ton of stuff in Vietnam. I just going back to Cat Ball Langer, you know, one of my first interviews mm. with Niaga Leonard, and they were actually sponsoring his program. So, you know, globally, I know down in Australia, they do a ton of work. New Zealand, I know does a ton of work. Uh, you know, some of these other organizations are out there. So that's great. Look at Waza. And, you know, just a couple more questions, John. Mm-hmm. Where are we globally with wildlife? You know, from your perspective, you know, you have a, a very broad background, a very broad perspective on, on global wildlife. I just wanted to kind of ask you that on the air, you know, where you think we are globally? No, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, for me, I have, I've worked with tons of animals. I've, I've worked with mm-hmm lots of amazing people and lots of amazing individuals who are doing a lot of great work. I think there's a ton of great work out there, but I do think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and every once in a while you'll see these news news stories about, Hey, there's an animal that we thought was extinct and we found a specimen or, you know, there was a, there was a frog mm-hmm. the other day and, you know, and, and those are great stories and those are um, interesting stories but I don't want us to get lulled into thinking, oh, it's okay if something goes extinct, we'll just find another specimen at some point. Or, mm-hmm. oh, they found one specimen, so we're we're totally fine. It's it's all good. Or um, you'll hear stories about artificial insemination and how that's helping. And it is helping, but we shouldn't rely on it because I think we have a ton of work to do from a global perspective with conservation. I think that animals and habitats and ecosystems are under some dire threats. And um, sometimes it looks really bleak out there. And sometimes it feels like there's nothing that we can do to help animals in the wild. But there is, there are things we can always do. There's always ways that we can help animals by the actions that we as individuals take, by the decisions we make. Are we going to sit around and 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 allow animals to go extinct under our watch mm-hmm. and be extinct so that when our our kids so when our boys are are our age that there aren't going to be animals out in the wild right. i'm not comfortable yeah. with that decision and i'm doing everything i can mm-hmm. to make sure that that doesn't happen but yep. all of us need to make a decision that we're going to stand up and say animals are important ecosystems are important we want to save them. We can all live together. We can all live together on the earth at, at the same time and we can all do what we want to do. But we need to say we're going to stand up for them and we're going to, we're going to save them. Nope. Yep. 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 I agree with you. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. We do. And we that's, do. That's why you're doing yep, what you're yep. doing. And you're doing all a right. Job so final question. Got... Yeah. No, thanks. And so final question, just, you know, how can our listeners help? Uh, if you gave them advice, how either your efforts or the Santa Fe College teaching zoo efforts, what are some of the things they can do? Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on. I'll try to keep it fairly brief, but I, obviously I want to pitch the program that um, mm-hmm. if you're interested in animals, if you're an, interested in animal keeping, uh, I think our program is great. Um, we start a new class every other semester. So every eight months we've got a new class coming in and we train you to be a zookeeper you become, you, you actually work as a zookeeper in our, in our zoo for two years. You get a degree and you can go right on to being zookeeping. And that's one way that some people want to give back and think that they can help and think that they can contribute. But everybody doesn't have to be a zookeeper to contribute. Um, you know, one of the things you need to do is listen to podcasts like this and educate yourself about animals and how important they are to the ecosystem. And then talk to your friends about it and make little changes in your lives. Um, whether it's, and I know you guys have talked about some of this stuff, whether it's again, less plastic in your lives, more reusable shopping bags, whether you're shopping locally. So you're not using as many fossil fuels. There are a million things that you can do 
and you can do them tomorrow and you can make a difference in animals. And I know that that does not feel like it. I know that's the thing is, so I don't take a plastic bag today. You know, how does that really help? In the big scheme of things, when you look beyond yourself and if everybody does that and everybody could make a small impact, it'll make a much larger impact. Yep. Vis- visiting your local zoo and aquarium, you're, you're, mm-hmm. uh, so you're accredited, you're AZA accredited zoo and aquarium that can help, you know, because again, just about every single zoo is doing exactly what we do and they take a portion of your admission and they give it directly to conservation. So you don't even have to give extra, even though that would be appreciated and that would be helpful, but your money goes directly to conservation and it helps animals in the wild. And that's a pretty great thing. And you should feel good about that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, last request. Do you want to try to do another lion sound before we sign off? <laughs> <laughs> Give you a second Give try. me a second chance on lion. Okay, uh, <laughs> Put you on the spot. I You've already done I a chop. I wasn't, wasn't prepped. Well, you did a chop. Very good. You did the hippo. Very, very good. Ooh, ooh, the tiger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here's lion. The, you've got the hippo down. I got, I got hippo. I, I mean, don't have to do that again. Here's lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ow! Ow! So again, that's that is an actual line. They don't much they, better. They don't just much roar. Better. They do this like guttural. <laughs> they push the sound out. When you are standing in front of a lion, and I know it doesn't happen to most of you guys. When you are standing in front of a lion and 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 he roars, it shakes your insides. You feel oh, the yeah. breath on your face, and uh, and there's there's uh, absolutely nothing like that in the world. Uh, a little bit of terror, yeah. But I, 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 yeah, I only recommend doing that um, from the safety of your local uh, zoo and aquarium if you can if you can get close enough. But or yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you just woke up your kids. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <She's> like, yeah. <laughs> Come run it in. Yeah, what was what's that? What's their lighthouse? <laughs> All right. Well. We're going to put Bongo on the list. That's for sure. That will be soon. Oh, so we'll have you back excellent. for that yeah. one. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We look forward to having you back. But thanks for taking the hour with us, John, and sharing your experiences and your insight. It it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Thanks, friend. Yeah, no problem. And again, I'm always happy to uh, – it, it is fun to be on the, the show whenever I can. But again, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to contribute. I'm happy to talk about animals anytime, animal conservation anytime. Again, we're all in this together, we, the three of us, but – all of us, all you listeners, everybody out there, we're all in this together. We're all doing this uh, for animals because we love animals. We love listening uh, to information about animals, and we, we are inspired by animals. And just the fact that you guys are listening, it's, that's what makes me uh, makes me proud, makes me happy. And, you know, it, 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 it helps encourage me to keep going on and, again, try to inspire the next generation because that's what yeah. it's all about. Yep, it is, it is, it is. All right, well, take care. All right, you too. Thanks. Take care.